0: It's 5 p.m. Thursday, time for So What's Your Story? The only program originating in Houston devoted to storytelling, and you're going to find it only here on Houston's community station, listener-sponsored KPFT. I'm Hank Rubichek, producer and tonight's host, and every week, along with the best team on radio, we celebrate the power of story by placing the spotlight on tellers who take us on journeys through windows of their souls. You know, in recent months, This show has been a platform for stories about the Holocaust, partly because of Holocaust Remembrance Day, but mostly because they must be told. It's well, important before it's too late. My grandmother and mother were in Sturhof concentration camp for three years. My grandmother, my grandfather, excuse me, in Dachau. I never met most of my family, they were murdered. I heard stories growing up and out of respect, I listened but I didn't really want to. Even at a young age, I knew the stories were all about tragedy and hatred and misery. After all, I was born in America. My life was different, but if there is anything we learn from the power of story, it's that we are compelled to listen because our lives are astonishingly connected. According to Yad Vashem, there are roughly 400,000 survivors currently in the world with approximately 175,000 living in Israel. My 90-year-old mother is one on the younger side of the distinguished spectrum, and in a few short years, the stories that fill our hearts and mind, these narratives about the worst of the human condition, will not be told unless another group steps up to the story plate, and that would be us, the second generation survivors, or two Gs as they have become known. Survivors don't always realize the effects that stories have on their child's development. Social scientists call one possible effect, transmission of trauma, a highly studied portion of the aftermath of the Holocaust. Simply put, transmission of trauma may begin the moment a child was born. For trauma specialist, Dr. Hannah Starman, many survivors saw such a child as a replacement of their own family hoping the child would fill gaps in their parents' lives. Many children were expected to undo what happened to their parents in the Holocaust, as well as satisfy their parents' yearning for lost siblings, parents, and extended family. Many second-generation survivors felt the need to protect their parents from even greater emotional distress than they have already experienced in the past. I wanted to set a little bit of a foundation of sort. For the stories that you're about to hear from my guests, two second gens, Dr. Hyman Penn and Mr. Mike Kahn. Both of these gentlemen are my friends and seasoned docents at Holocaust Museum Houston. Let's start with Mike. Uh, Mr. Mike Kahn was a middle school English teacher in both New York City and suburban Houston before entering the field of information technology. Uh, Mike, uh, Mike and I serve on the docent leadership committee at Holocaust Museum Houston. Mike, your stories are categorized into narrative snippets. What you learned before you were 40 and after. I'm curious, what makes 40 a benchmark?
1: Well, it was when I was just after I turned 40 is when I learned the, all the facts about my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had been sheltered from those facts by collusion <laughs> of my, my parents and my grandmother and my, my aunt and uncle. Uh, I grew up in a, in a house with my parents, my little sister and my paternal grandmother. Um, when I was about 15, she told me about how she and my grandfather and aunt had gotten out of Germany uh, in May of 1939 and it was sheer luck because um, they had always contributed money. To, they had a toy store in Essen in Germany. And when a guy would come around soliciting contributions to support Jews in Palestine, they would always give him some money. And he came into their store in February of 1938. and he said, you people have always been good to me, I'm gonna do you a big favor. And he gave them visa applications to go to America. And my grandmother, as I knew her later on, always wanted there to be another alternative. And here they were faced with an alternative. My father had already gone to live in Holland in 1934, because it was unsafe for a young Jewish man to live in their city at that point. And um, his journey then extended in 1936. He had to leave Holland because you couldn't be employed and uh, have a job. So he went to live in South Africa because some of the guys he worked with said, you know, they always need bakers in South Africa. He was a baker by trade at that time. Um So that's what I knew. There were, there were pictures of my paternal grandfather who passed away four years before I was born in the house. Uh, but there were no pictures of my mother's family. And uh, my mother's family it was like a, it was like a blank. I knew that my grandfather had been wounded in World War I. I knew they lived in a, a small town in Bavaria in southern Germany uh, but that's really about all I knew about them and I, I just accepted that because as a kid you know you accept what, you, what your parents tell you or don't tell you or whatever but I did know that I remember I was about seven or eight years old and one afternoon my mother just started crying and I asked her you know what's the matter and she said, well, it's, it's really hard to lose your parents when you're young. And that's, that's all I knew about them. I knew she had relatives uh, who lived across the bridge in Manhattan from us. And more often than not, on the weekend, she would take my little sister and I to visit those people. So she would have some contact with those people and to show that, yes, she had children. But that's, that's really all, all I knew about my maternal side. Um, and in our house, we kept getting letters or air letters, you know, the, the old folded one page air letters that were blue and they came from California, they came from Johannesburg, they came from Israel some came from, from Germany, but um, and I, my father's sister and, hus, and her husband and my three cousins that I knew lived in Hartford, Connecticut. So that was my world as far as my family was concerned. I knew that all my friends had grandparents, multiple grandparents. I, I knew only one. So it was, it was different. Um, I knew that my parents were different because we did not live in a, a German-Jewish neighborhood. We lived in an Irish-Italian and Jewish neighborhood. But I knew my parents were different because they were immigrants. All my friends' parents were born in America. So there were, there were blanks. And... and um, um, Until I turned forty, that's what—that's really all I knew.
0: So that age, that age was really given to you. You didn't necessarily say, "I'm going to be forty, and I'm going to make an assessment now." No, it was just yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And I and I appreciate this, Mike, because I remember you telling me once that, uh, and, and Hi, you you can chime in on this too when we did that session at the museum a couple of months ago. I guess it was some of us never really heard much about the Holocaust growing up, right? Mm-hmm. And some of us did. Uh, Mike, you did not, and hi, and I did, <laughs> um, at least more so, right? And and I think that our stories, our stories are really going to demonstrate that. Uh, retired Texas children's pediatrician, Dr. Hi Penn, served uh, the Kingwood and Umble area for 35 years. Along with his role as docent, he is also on the board of trustees. Uh, hi, one of the iconic photo- uh, photographs in the museum is of your father, Morris Penn. Uh, getting off the train in Houston to begin a new life. Your dad was from the, was from uh, Vilkaviskis, is that right? I think that's close okay. enough, right? Lithuania, and your mother, Linda, and grandmother, Riva Kramer, came from Grodno, Poland. Our families uh, really hail from the same region. Mine is from Kovna. There's a photo uh, in the museum of my great uncle and his family at the Kovna deportation depot waiting to be sent to Dachau. Um, so we have a lot in common in that respect, that, that, that cultural phenomena, as I've gotten to know you, is really so, 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 so similar. You told me that your mother's past history was branded on her left forearm. And you're referring, of course, to her tattoo. Tell us the story.
2: Uh, sure. Uh, my mother grew up in a very loving family, as you said, in Grodno, Poland, which is now in uh, by, uh, Belarus. And she had her parents and a little brother. Her father had a dry cleaning business. And life changed for them when World War II started in uh, September of 1939. And uh, they didn't get to go to a ghetto right away. But eventually, they ended up in a ghetto where the situation was just terrible. Uh, You know, limited food and limited supplies. And one day, it was February 13th, 1943, they were told they were going to be relocated you know, hopefully a better place to live, uh, jobs, uh, you know, a new life. And they met in the synagogue overnight with a bag uh, that each of them packed. And they were taken the next morning to uh, the train station in Grudno. But there at the train, they weren't regular passenger cars. They were cattle cars or box cars, just a big empty box and so the name. And they were packed into these cars uh, tightly And they didn't know where they were were going, but hopefully they were hoping to get to a better place. And they arrived in in a concentration camp called Treblinka. This was one of the killing centers. And I'll never forget my mother telling me there was so much commotion getting off the train and the guards were screaming at them. You go here, you go there, you go here, you go there. And they told my mother and grandmother to go in one direction and they told my father, uh, his, her father and little brother to go in another direction. And they went straight to the gas chambers. Uh, they picked my mother and grandmother to work. And this began a two-year journey going from camp to camp, nine different camps. And one of them was Auschwitz uh, or Auschwitz-Birkenau as it's uh, sometimes referred to. And at this camp, uh, they further tried to dehumanize you Uh, by taking away your name and you were now a number. And not only were you a number, but your number was tattooed to your left forearm. And so you said my mother was branded because this stayed with her the rest of her life.
0: Wow, that is so poignant, so many camps. And who was it that went straight to the gas chambers?
2: Uh, her father and the brother. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Huh.
0: What was it like when your friends told you about your mother's tattoo? Um,
2: you know, my my mother never hid her tattoo. Uh, she never covered it up, and uh, and often wore short sleeves, so mm-hmm. it was almost like a badge of courage, uh, always showing. Yeah. And I remember when I was a child, I didn't know my friends knew about my mother's history and about her tattoo. But over the years, I have found out that they all knew. And as a matter of fact, this past weekend, uh, I was invited. I lived in a small town for eight years called New Gulf, Texas. It was the sulfur producing capital of the world, about 60 miles from Houston in Wharton County. And I went to the reunion, there were like 60 people in the graduating class, and I didn't graduate from there, but they invited me to be with them, anybody who attended uh, during those school years. And so many people came up to me and said one of the most powerful moments in their lives was seeing my mother's tattoo, but not only seeing it, but she would tell them the story about that tattoo, that tattoo. And... uh, and there, there's a story that, uh, that I just got a, a note from, from somebody from the town that I thought I'd just share with you. My parents uh, moved to New Gulf. We all moved to New Gulf uh, because my father, this is 1957, so he had just been in the country seven years, uh, eight years, and uh, had a chance to open his own clothing store. So we were uh, uh, the only Jewish family and the only family that didn't work for Texas Gulf Sulphur living in the town or one of the few for sure. And uh, so this is a a note from uh, somebody who uh, shopped with with them. And this is what this uh, teenage girl had to say. Uh, When your parents newly owned the store, I shocked and horrified my mother by asking to see your mother's tattoo. My mother had no idea she even had one, but I knew at a glance what it meant. I asked because my teacher had encouraged us post-war babies to never forget. Your mom pleasantly pulled up the sleeve and showed me. And when my mother almost fainted at my affront, your mother called her and told her I was right to never forget. She was so lovely to me and I have never forgotten. And I've just heard so many comments like this from friends that I didn't even know they knew my, my mother, and for that matter, my father were both Holocaust survivors. And it, it just touched me how powerful, um, you know, that image was for them growing up.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and uh, well, that's a great letter. That is a great letter. Uh, and uh, we're, we're not going to leave the topic of letters because Mike is, Mike is interestingly enough going to talk to us about Uh, Letters in just a moment. Uh, Mike, okay, I wanted to go back for our listeners just to remind them of what you said a little bit earlier in the first part of your story. Uh, Your mother's family is basically a blank. You saw your mother crying when you were about eight years old. You asked her what's wrong, and she turned to you and very poignantly said, Well, it's really tough to lose your parents when you're young, right? But now, Uh, I understand that your family, uh, I know didn't speak much about the Holocaust, but after 40, you managed to fill in a few gaps about your maternal grandparents. Tell us how.
1: Well, three things really happened uh, basically after my 40th birthday. The first was my uncle who would go into Israel passed away in like 1987. And his community published a, a, a book in Hebrew about his life. And they sent us a copy. And I'm looking through this book. And there were pictures of the entire family. My uncle had kept pictures. So this first time I saw my grandparents, my great-grandmother, and my mother at that time was about 10 years old and she was a true doppelganger for my own daughter at 10 years old and there's another picture in there of my grandfather in a wheelchair and um, that was the result of his war wounds I found out later from one of my mother's cousins that he suffered from some kind of um, chronic sclerosis from a war wound that spread in his body and by the time, by 1938, he was pretty um, totally paralyzed. Um, but what I also found out from that cousin was that on air of Rosh Hashanah, the new year of 1939, just after World War II started, the Nazis came to their town and evacuated all the Jews and sent them to Wurzburg. So that's where that story took a pause. Um, My father passed away in 1991. And my sister and I were in the house and my grandmother, you know, had lived with them until 1979 when she passed away. And my sister and I, went through the house looking for stuff that we wanted to keep. So I went down to my grandmother's room and in her bureau, I found this hand-sewn canvas bag that probably could have been used as a money belt at some point, but it was it was full of letters. And I looked, I'm looking through these letters and they're dated 1939, 1940, Forty-one, and some even from 1942 and I was was dumbfounded and I couldn't read the German because it was written in old German anyway and but I could read the names on those on the signatures and a few months later I went to see my aunt my father's sister who was in a nursing home in Connecticut and I asked her who were these people? And she glared at me angrily and said, how did you find out about them? And I said, well, I found these letters in my grandmother's bureau. And she told me who these people were. My grandfather had three sisters who signed up for visas much later, after Kristallnacht probably, and they and their families were all killed. And, um, she told me, gave me some little details about some of them, um, through Yad by Shem and, um, their website, I found two of the sisters and their husbands and their children and where they had been killed, but there's no trace of the third sister and her husband. And, uh, I went to the international tracing service, nothing there's No information about them at all. So, but my grandmother kept those letters through three moves. So, I believe she wanted somebody to find them. Yeah, Because nothing was more important to my grandmother than than family. Now, the third thing that happened, my, my wife and I went to Israel in 1997 and visited my My aunt, my husband, my uncle's widow, and met my three Israeli cousins for the first time. And she told me about a woman whose name was Cordula Kupner, who was a professor at a university in Bavaria. And in 1987, I believe, she had written to my mother and to my uncle asking if they wanted to participate in an exhibit about. Kristallnacht and the Jews of Bavaria. And my mother responded she didn't want to have anything to do with remembering those terrible times. But she said my uncle could if he wanted to. So my, un- my aunt, my uncle passed away in the interim. She wrote back to Cordula Kupner and gave her names and whatever. And Cordula Kupner found my mother and my aunt's, my mother and uncle's report cards back in the archives in Amershausen, their little town. But she also found the uh, documentation of the intake interview by the Gestapo of my grandparents in Würzburg. And she also found the manifest where my grandmother's name was listed uh, on a transport to Belzec. My grandfather passed away a couple of days after they got to Wurzburg. He is buried in the Jewish cemetery in Wurzburg. And my sister and I went to that cemetery, found his grave uh, in 2017. We also went back to Amershausen, where my mom grew up, and to Ulrichstein, where my grandmother grew up, and to Essen, where my father grew up. And it was, it was really a. Um, I've got to call Sandy Lessing back. Anyway, it was really a closure for me in seeing in seeing where everything happened, and uh, so um, the house my grandmother was born in, 1883, went to the cemetery there, and in, in um, so my, where my great grandparents are buried. Um, so that really kind of closed the loop for me on, on what happened to, to my family. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Sandy Lessig. She's actually an integral part of today, believe it or not. I'm not feeling great, everybody, and I'm probably making less sense today than I make sense than every other week. So forgive me, listeners. But uh, yeah, I told Sandy this morning that uh, I couldn't do a reading at the service this afternoon at, uh, at Yom HaShoah. So she's probably calling you to okay. you know, fill in or something. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Mike, this is a great story. And I'll tell you, I love letters. You know, the whole concept of letters. One of my uh, favorite books is War Letters um, and uh, the whole compilation. Uh, but th- that that was put out a number of years ago, the Brokaw Letters. But wh- one of the things that I love about this story is that letters are without question the most One of them well, one of the most revealing modes of communication known to humankind is just incredible. Uh, My my uh, my my mother-in-law is ninety-nine years old. She just moved to Houston, and you know we're getting her settled in independent living. And uh, my wife found a box of Civil War letters in the (laughs) attic. All right, I mean, come on, come on, Uh, you know, no, brother. And uh, these are Union soldiers who were writing letters to my, to my wife's great-great-grandmother if they could court her after the war. So I love that. Yeah, it was great. It was great, but I love that. That was wonderful. This is Hank Rubacek, and you're listening to So What's Your Story with my special guests, Dr. Hypen and Mr. Mike Khan, imparting some spiritual reflections of being raised in a second-generation survivor home. Only on Houston's Community Station, KPFT, 90.1 FM, 89.5 in Galveston, and 91.9 in Huntsville. You know, we're always talking about the resurgence of storytelling on this program. The good news is that Houston is a great place to sharpen your skill set. Our sponsor, the Houston Storytellers Guild, is a terrific place to tell stories and meet some of the nicest people around. They meet virtually the fourth Tuesday of every month from 7 to 8.30 p.m. The next swap is gonna be on May 24th. So visit their website at www.houstonstorytellers.org for the Zoom link to that swap and all their other story swaps. You would really be dazed by all of the outstanding tellers in this state. Don't take my word for it, just check out the Tejas Storytelling Association or take your skills to the next level and become a member of the National Storytelling Network. And by the way, Please contact me at so What's your story at facebook.com slash so What's your story with your comments. And if you have any guests in mind, questions about guests, or you want to turn anybody to me on, I'll be happy to contact that person. Just text me at Hank and 832-277-1581. Again, that is 832-277-1581. One five eight one. All of that essential information is going to be on our website. Uh, you know, uh, to both of you gentlemen, there really is a resurgence in the art of telling. That's really one of the beautiful missions of this program. Um, and and but sometimes listeners will call in, I'll write me, and ask, you know, how do I find good stories to tell? And I have my own uh, anecdotes, but what would you tell them? What would you tell them, Mike? How do you find
1: stories to tell? Well, I mean, re- reality is stranger than fiction, it, right? And that's that's what I find in in my case. Um, when we, when we finally got our those letters translated, uh, I found out that my grandmother's sister had uh, been sent to Gurs, which is where the um, uh, Ruth Markowitz was later saved by the, by the Osei. And um, my, it was not a, a concentration camp in the classic sense. So they were able to send her letters and food packages, which she was totally grateful for. And she was apologetic for causing my grandparents such trouble and and whatever. So You know, and her last letter said, well, uh, they're not letting us move around at all. This was when she was later in a a hotel in Germany. And uh, they're not letting us walk, leave our rooms or anything. They're moving us to another camp. And I found out from a researcher in Germany that that camp, April 25th 1942 they were all those people were sent to Auschwitz wow yeah. but my aunt my, when my aunt told me about her she told me that she had died after being liberated so that was a family legend that um, you know came to be but st- stories are, are everywhere I, I, like, I love listening to my grandchildren tell stories Mm -hmm. which are totally disjointed and make no sense some of the time, but they're, they're really um, intricate. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very detailed. Very detailed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Well, you know, stories are uh, it, it takes time to really be able to craft a good story. Simply put, you need a very focused episode. You need coherence. It has to resonate. There's a lot to it, but everybody does have a story to tell
2: you're absolutely right. Hi, what would you tell somebody? Well, I would sell, tell people to look for stories that have made an impact on your life, uh, because if they've impacted you, they're probably going to be meaningful to somebody else. Yeah, I think that makes great sense. Absolutely good sense. If it's, if
0: it's important to you, you'll find a way to make it important to others. Very influential stuff really is transformational. Hi, you had mentioned a few learning points that your parents taught you. And Mike, these are also gonna resonate with both you and me. Uh, preparing for the future. Eat everything on your plate. Treat others with respect. And I get it. You know, in my world, I, uh, I prepared for the future but didn't have any fun in the process. I tell stories all the time about, um, I guess I had fun as a kid, but I don't remember any. I remember going down in my uh, in my in the basement my grandmother cooked in the basement because she didn't want to get the kitchen upstairs dirty, right? And people want to know why I'm OCD. Hello. So I went down in the basement. I used to get all of these pots and pans out of the cupboards and take those wooden spoons and start playing drums. And she'd come down and smile and she'd say, "That's very nice, but it won't help you become a rabbi." You know, stuff like that. So uh, yeah, and that's that's at the age of five. All right, yeah. So I don't know about you guys, but uh, fun—I don't know, I don't know, I don't know—hard to tell. Um, eating everything on your plate, my God, that really hits home. My grandmother would put crackers in her purse. This is a fairly traditional gesture among many survivors, even if mm-hmm. she's traveling a half a mile down the road for fear of starving. Uh, but you know, the one uh, high that you had mentioned of, the, of this list—it's respect for others—that I really appreciated the most, and actually. I wanted to thank you for giving me a chance to think about this because I thought about how being raised in a home of survivors teach us respect, and it it, it was at every turn. At every turn, um, you know. For example, um, I well, the story that I, that first came to mind is there was a gentleman by the name of uh, Maury Maltzmacher. Mister Maltzmacher had a small shoe store about two blocks away. It was uh, about a block away from Drexler's Drugstore. Now, every Friday at 4 o'clock p.m., every Friday, I had to walk down to Drexler's Drugstore to buy my grandparents the Jewish Forward, you know, the Yiddish newspaper. And I would go down there. And my grandmother would always say to me, make sure you say hello to Mr. Maltzmacher. Now, I, I thought, yeah, okay, fine. Like, I'll wave to him, right? So I'd walk past his store, and I'd wave to him. And he'd come out angrily even in the middle of winter. And this is Cleveland, it was cold. He come out and he said, what's the matter with you? I said, why, I I waved to you. He said, that's not the way you say hello to anybody. You come in, you say, hello, Mr. Maltzmacher, how are you? I knew his daughter, so I kind of knew him pretty well. But he said, you come in, you say hello. You talk for a few minutes, you take your time. And I did that, and then I went to get the newspaper And when I came back, I couldn't walk on the other side of the street. You had to go through the same thing. God forbid if you walked on the other side of the street. So I walked on the same side of the street and I waved to him. Now, this is a guy who if you walked in and said, I need shoes, the first thing he would say is what's wrong with the ones you have on? He sold (laughs) shoes for a living, right? But he made shoes and he fixed shoes. So he wanted to know, you know, what was wrong with the shoes that he fixed that would make you want to buy another pair? And I cannot tell you and our listeners how much I learned from that seemingly really simple set of transactions. I can't tell you. It taught me so much about integrity. It taught me about taking time to say hello. Obviously, uh, this gentleman, well, not obviously, but he was also a uh, survivor. I knew my grandparents very well. I lived in an area where there were many, many survivors. And there was a very special kind of courtesy among all of them, a kind of respect. And, and respect was, uh, it was just at every turn. The idea of learning respect was really something that I think I learned from my family probably more than anything else, probably more than anything. Uh, hi, there's something essential to us that uh, that all of us learned from our parents surviving the, academic, uh, the, the, the pandemic. And um, I know that you have an interesting story about what we learn about getting through this terrible pandemic. Tell us that story.
2: Uh, sure. You know, as the um, pandemic was unfolding about two years ago, and many of the pieces of the puzzle were trying to be understood. And you know, I must say, as a physician at the time, as well as an individual, it was anxiety producing. And then I would think about my parents. Uh, you know, As I said, my mother and grandmother went through nine different camps and survived. And my father was hidden by Christian farmers in his home country of Lithuania. And he thought about what they had gone through, not really knowing what the next day would bring, not knowing if there would be food to eat, uh, not knowing if you would be alive or what would happen to you. And And I would think, you know, if they could do it, then I could do it too. And they taught me to just stay focused. And this is, these are lessons that I used throughout my life. Just stay focused and be positive. Believe that it will get better. Mm -hmm. And you must always have hope. Yeah. Because hope will keep you going. How do you do that? How do you do that? This
0: really goes to both of you gentlemen. How do you have hope? I know that sounds like a ridiculously unprofound
2: question, but how do you have hope? How do you find it? You know, I think you have to, to stay focused and, and hope that there's going to be a better day ahead. Uh, you know, we've seen so many things in life be cyclical and, and we just have to realize if we work at it, maybe the day will be better for us. Fair, Fair enough. Good.
0: Yeah, Mike. What do you think? Any
2: impact? Any insight there?
1: Well, well, one lesson I learned from my grandmother specifically was that America is a great country, and she proved that. She was uh, about eighty-five years old, in her early eighties, and she had cataract surgery, and she didn't get all that she knew she was supposed to get from Medicare so she sat me down and she we're going to write a letter to the congressman. And by that time, her letter writing had gotten really good. I guess when I was about seven or eight, she had me starting to write letters for her in English. But um, so we sent this letter to the congressman. And a week later, she got an answer from the congressman. With a copy of a letter he'd sent to the administrator of Medicare in New York, and a week later she got the check she was looking for. And um, when it came time for the draft, in for me in uh, 1971, and I was aiming to be a, a teacher in the city of New York, which would have got me a deferment. She said, that's not good enough. They can take that away with the stroke of a pen. had hurt my knee playing basketball a couple of years before that. And she said, write a letter to the Congressman about your knee. So that's what I did. And a few days later, I got a response back from the Congressman with a copy of a letter he'd sent to the head of the induction center in New York to pay pay special attention to my case. And, well, special attention was paid to my case. Mm -hmm. And I was declared ineligible for the draft. But that was her lesson to me, that this is America. And people have rights. And nobody can take those away from you. Yeah,
0: that's a great,
1: great case study and hope, Mike.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Hi, you have an astounding story about going back to Lithuania to
2: find your father's rescuers. Tell us that story. Yeah, sure. Uh, my father uh, was from, as you said, from Vilkavyskus, Lithuania, a town of about ten thousand people, and forty percent of the population was Jewish. It had a vibrant Jewish community, and my father lived there with his parents. He had one brother, Joseph, who was married. And another brother who was older, as well as a little sister. His family owned a business that catered to the Christian farmers of the community. It was like a grocery and farmer supply store. And first the Russians came in in 1940 and took over, and then the Nazis came in in 41. And that's when things really went sour. And one day in the summer in July of 1940, uh, 41, they ordered all the Jewish men to report. To the town square, and then they marched them with their belongings that they had to bring uh, to a remote part of town where they picked my father and his brother Joseph to sort through all the belongings that the men brought. And the other men, including his father and older brother, had to dig a big pit behind the building. And the following day, my father heard commotion and he looked out the window. And he saw all the Jewish men of the town, including his father and brother lined up in front of the pit, my father said five in a row. And he watched as they were shot, uh, shot by bullets. Um, with He said one bullet going through all five and the bodies just falling into the pit that they had just dug. And at this point he realized it's not safe in this town anymore. And he and his brother were able to get back uh, to the town and uh, get back to their mother and little sister and told them what had happened and said that we've got to go into hiding. And they contacted some of the Christian farmers, that they had done business with them and asked them, would you hide us? And some of them said, yes. And unfortunately his mother and little sister were caught and they were betrayed and, and murdered. But my father, his father's brother, and father and brother's wife were able to survive thanks to these righteous uh, Christians. So my parents went on and I never knew about that story. And now it's the mid eighties and my parents are getting ready to retire and they started their next career. And that was going into schools to teach people and children about the Holocaust and tell their story. And during that time, my father had this idea. He wanted to go back to Lithuania to tell these farmers and their families, thank you. And in 1992, it was 30 years ago about right now, uh, he made all the arrangements and this was before the internet. So I don't know how he was able to accomplish all of this but he contacted a lot of people by phone and writing them uh, actual letters. And and we went to Vilkovichkas to the town that he was from. And we walked into the home of somebody you'll never read about or hear about, uh, a couple named Petrus and Ursula Maladukas. And they were living in Vilkaviskas, in this little town, a population I don't think had changed much, except the Jews were no longer there. Uh, but we walked into their house and they were still living in the same house that they had hidden Jews in during the war. And you could tell they had little means. They didn't even have indoor plumbing because if you had to go to the bathroom, there was an outhouse around back. And we walked in and the families that had hidden my father were there. Uh, The children, the parents had already passed away, but their children and, and their children, so the grandchildren of the rescuers, were there also because they wanted them to see what their grandparents had risk doing this and they had a spread of food for us on their finest china and petrus was there with his wife and his uh daughter who is now the principal of the school high school in but she was three years old during the war but we asked petrus how could you do this how could you hide jews risking your life the life of your wife, the life of your then three-year-old daughter to save these Jews that you didn't even know. And tears just started coming to his eyes. And he said, it had to be done. It had to be done. The families then took us, we didn't know where we were going, but they took us to the site where there's a memorial now where my father watched his father, and brother murdered. And they brought tulips for all of us. And everybody there placed a tulip on the gravesite. And we said Kaddish, at least my uh, brother and sister-in-law, my wife and I, and my mother and father said Kaddish for the first time at the site, where my father's uh, father and brother, this is the memorial prayer that is said to remember A loved one who passed away. And that was the first time my father recited it at the burial site.
0: It had to be done. What a great line. It had to be done. It absolutely says it all. You know, someone once said that if you always do what's right, you'll never be wrong. Uh, That's not quite the same thing, but it's awfully close. Awfully close. What a great image. Hi. What a beautiful image. I wanted to just shift gears for a moment and ask uh, both of you gentlemen, what's the most important thing that you learn from your guests on a tour? All right, let's start with you. What's the, what's, 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 I, I know there are a lot of things, there are a lot of things, but what's one thing that you really learn from your guests?
2: Well, you know, I tell stories about my family on my tour just to make it more personal and and to connect. And I I didn't realize how strong what I would have to say would be uh, coming from the child of survivors. But I really learned uh, over and over again how important my voice is. And I'll I'll give you an example of that. Uh, I once was giving a tour to middle school students and One of the students was a tough looking kid. I wasn't sure how engaged he was, but he came up to me when I finished the tour. This is after like two hours uh, walking around and explaining and talking, but he came up to me and he said something I've just never forgotten. He said, when you speak, I can hear your father's voice. Mm -hmm. and that was just a just a powerful uh message that he sent that my voice is important
0: yeah that's a beautiful thought
2: well stories are very
0: transformational they really are Uh, we don't realize that the stories that were told by our parents our grandparents really become embedded in our minds and our hearts i mean from uh from the standpoint of telling a story our styles come from our families they really do but what a wonderful thought that's beautiful mike how about you one thing that you well, learn from your
1: guests what i've really learned is that there's a sympathy for discrimination mm-hmm. for the victims of discrimination and i, I see that from African-American students, and I see that from Hispanic students who really understand what it is to be discriminated against. um, And to see other people who have been discriminated against, and then they see me, who comes from this past of terrible discrimination against my family, and they understand that you can get past it. And, and that really um, is heartwarming to me because that they know that there's, there's hope for them no matter what they look like and no mm-hmm. matter what um, where they came from. Yeah,
0: great thought. Yeah, yeah. I see that, Uh, like, hi, you know, I try to tell stories during a tour to personalize it. And I remember a student not too long ago, and this has happened before, it says, you know, you're awfully passionate. Um, And that, (laughs) I thought, well, that's pretty good. You know, that is pretty good. I don't know there's a whole lot of things about which people are passionate anymore. I don't know. But the idea of seeing that, that's gotta work. That has to work really great wonderful hi you know you are um uh well i wanted to talk about a little bit more about the impressions that we have of the group and the impact but hi i just wanted to ask you why are you called the great hydini <laughs> why am i
2: called the great haidini well, yeah I'm do, a,
0: we write the great hydini i i gotta get
2: this one i just want to make sure we well that. i am a magician i'm a amateur magician you I'm are no kidding around, uh, so that's literal that's literal wow Yes, no, and I—it's uh, I, my, my career started with my grandmother, the Holocaust survivor, when she was living in New York before she moved in with us in Houston. She used to send me tricks in the mail, and I would work on it. And by the time I was in fifth grade, I was performing for for my friends and performing at birthday parties and mm-hmm. uh, and continued my career. So uh, Houdini was a famous uh, immigrant right, right. and Jewish yeah. magician, and mm-hmm. I was a camp counselor one summer and. One of my campers said you know your name instead of, because i just call my name hi the magician or something and he said you know you should be called not the great houdini but the great hi since your name is Hi. so that's how it started i love it
0: that's great what is your favorite trick what, what, what is what is your fail safe trick have you
2: got one oh many i i i love to misdirect and lead people (laughs) onto saying one thing and then pull something else off. Right, there you go,
0: there you go, I love it. Good for you, I didn't know that. That is pretty fascinating. All right, let me ask you gentlemen this, how how did it feel telling, uh, I I know that both of you have told these stories before, but how did it feel when these stories unfolded again? There's a lot of people listening to us And, and this is a really very powerful show because I put it best, You know, your voice matters, right? And, and I want our listeners to know why our voices matter so much. But how, how did it feel for these stories to
1: unfold? Mike, how did it feel? Well, you know, I'm, I'm really proud to tell the story of, of my family because not only I, but uh, my, my second and third cousins around the world have thrived coming coming out of the darkness you know one of my one of my grandmother's brothers went to Argentina in 1937 and built his first home out of shipping crates you know there's this great adaptability that that we have as a family and as a people that um, is really a great sacrifice, the, the victory over the Nazis, because they, they tried to destroy us and they killed untold number of us, but we're still here and, um, bring it on. Right. Well said.
2: Hi, what do you think? Well, you know, I think stories can be very, very powerful and, uh, And, you know, I hope, you know, my stories are powerful to my guests, but I I recently did a tour for refugee students. They were all high school students who had been in the United States less than a year, and uh, they seemed to really connect their English. They could understand everything that they're speaking they were still working on. Uh, But but they wrote me letters when they got back and that may have been an assignment from the teacher to practice their English uh, ability to write. But there was one theme in the letter that they had to say that, that by listening to the stories of my parents and other Houston survivors that arrived in this country in our city with really nothing and made a life for themselves it gave them hope, and they said, "You know, I think I can do the same thing." And I, I hope, I hope they are. So yeah. powerful, powerful uh, messages uh, can be gained from stories. Yeah, beautiful. Who was a storyteller in your house growing up? I, uh, oh, my father. Wow, yeah. he, yeah. he, uh, he would uh, tell stories and stories, and he, he told. Yeah. He started at all three, at three. There were three children in the family, and we all got married it within a three-year period mm-hmm. and my father spoke at our rehearsal dinner he had a like a he spoke for like 15 minutes which Very is too odd. long and then at my brother's I think he spoke for 45 minutes and then at my mm-hmm. sister's wedding he spoke like over an hour and mm-hmm. he had everybody mesmerized but I, we were like you know going crazy huh? you know, wishing <laughs> he would stop
1: yeah
0: Mike what about you who was the uh, storyteller in your house growing up
1: well I think my father told stories about his sojourn in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And um, ha- how it was a, a completely different way of life from what he had grown up, you know, being son of a shopkeeper in, in Essen. And now he was a baker in a country where he really didn't, at the beginning, understand the language very well at all. Um, but my grandmother told me some stories, and she told them in German, mm-hmm. which I and I understood what she was talking about. And at the end of many of those stories, she would say something, and I the words are emblazoned in my mind, mm-hmm. diesen alle Umgekommen. They were all killed by the Nazis.
2: Mm. Wow.
1: You know, wow. And, and um That, that phrase will be with me forever. Right,
0: right. Wow. What a memorable, that's incredibly poignant, Mike. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, the show has uh, moved along quite swimmingly. I was afraid of that. You guys are great. Thank you so much, Dr. Hypenn and Mr. Mike Kahn, for your soul fueled stories of growing up as a second generation survivor. Hate hasn't gone away. So, your stories, our stories, will prove vital as we continue to fight against hatred and bigotry. You gentlemen took us on a different kind of tour this afternoon, a kind of masterful expedition through vivid images of love and compassion. You showed us how stories in fact stretch the boundaries of the human heart. Now don't you dare move because Charles Hightower's R&B Gold is up next with a very cool mix of soul. Make Houston's community station KPFT 90.1 a part of every day. join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. So, for So What's Your Story? And we just want you to know that if you keep loving great stories, well, we're going to keep bringing them to you. On behalf of the So What's Your Story team, this is Dr. Hank, and we want you to remember that it is never too late to live happily ever after. Peace.
1: All right, nice job. Thank you. Perfectly Thank timed. You,
0: Hank. Perfectly timed. Beautiful job. Thank you, guys. Hey, Thank hi,
1: you. hi. Yes. Uh, since since Hanks not feeling well, um, Sandy drafted me to do his reading <laughs> okay. this afternoon, so you we need to leave early. early. Okay. And what time? Over.
2: Just tell me what time.
1: One. <laughs> okay. So Two. one. Okay.
2: She
0: says you have that reading? If you have that piece, Mike? I have it. I'll send it to you.
1: Okay. Um, she, she, I told her to send it to me. Yeah. Let's see if I've got it.
0: Well, I sent it. To, I, I, I modified yeah, it. it so that it's larger,
1: it. easier to see. But,
0: um, yeah. I'll, I'll be printing it out. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thanks. Sure. <laughs> this was great, fellas. It really was. What would you think? Okay. What'd okay. You Good. What would you think? Work well? I always wanted to be on the radio. Yeah, well, you will be. Yeah, you will be. It's obviously it's not as much fun as going to the station. That's the most fun part, but eventually they'll get a station, hopefully in June. But uh, you know, that's okay. Same thing. But I will send you all the essential information, the links, all the information. Uh this show is going to be aired uh this Thursday, May 5th, I guess it is, right? Yeah, at five o'clock. So I'll send you all the link, all the information so you can send it to everybody and I'll uh, contact Mark Osborne and see if he wants to make everybody else aware too. But this was a okay. really great show and it's an important one because our voices need to be heard. Yes. Yep.
2: yes, yes. Thank
0: you very much, guys. Well, Have a great you. rest of the day. Thank you. I sure oh, do. Thank you. Bye-bye. So wanna, do you
2: want me to drive, Mike?